Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. In this episode, I'm speaking with Darlene Tonelli. Darlene's a lawyer who started Interalia Law, a unique legal advisory firm, and she co-hosts the Lawyer Life podcast, where she and co-host Mike Anderson help lawyers navigate their days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. Darlene and I talk about getting her foot in the door at a record company, what she finds attractive about philosophical stoicism, and, well, we end up spending a bunch of time talking about music, what it meant to us growing up, what it means to us now, and the timeless value of hair metal ballads. This is her story. All right. Darlene Tonelli, welcome. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm I'm glad to be speaking with you. It's uh it's a conversation I've been looking forward to for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is you're sort of a podcasting inspiration to me, but also, and here's where we might as well start. Uh, and I don't know if I've mentioned this this to you before. You had the job that I wanted when I went to law school, right? So <laughs> I went to law school wanting to work at a record company. I actually so I had actually I think I went to law school wanting to be David Geffen. I hadn't yet sort of appreciated that I lacked a bunch of the sort of modules that David Geffen kind of came preloaded with. But my goal was go to law school, work at a record company. I never actually accomplished that goal. You did. Why not? Why Why didn't I? Yeah. Did you put your, well, I'll tell you how I got in there and it was, it involved a whole process, but why did you kind of get diverted and find something else that you liked or? I think I didn't, I still don't uh, like the prospect of being in-house. I liked working at a law firm much more than I thought I would. I liked the autonomy of being at a law firm. Um, as strange as that may sound to people, there, there actually is a fair amount of latitude that comes along with working at a law firm. Uh, and I didn't love the prospect of, you know, sort of like constantly being on call where like I have somebody, everybody's just down, like I'm just down the hall from everybody and everybody's like, Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Like, that was just not, I'd prefer it if people call me and like, you know, send me an email and we can set up a time to chat. And I needed that space between me and the client, but how did you ultimately end up there? And then what did you enjoy about it? And what didn't you enjoy about it? Well, it's just funny because I didn't go to law school. So opposite to you, didn't even understand. I'm from a small city in Alberta, came to Toronto first for law school. And I didn't know that there were record labels in Toronto, to be honest. And I had never thought about, it had honestly not occurred to me, which is going to sound strange for people who grow up in Toronto where there is media around, right? But when you're from Red Deer, Alberta, like I am, the idea of having a real job in music was not even in my consciousness at the time. So when I came to law school, I, it wasn't a goal to work in music in any way. And I went straight into big firm life and all of that stuff. And really the way that I got into it was when I was in, and I've told this story many times, but when I was in the firm, I just felt like I would never be great at what I was doing because I just wasn't interested enough in the subject matter that I was like of my practice area. And there was a woman from my law school who was just phenomenal at another firm. Like I could watch her in action and I could see her at the same events. And I'm like, oh my God, she likes being here. She's mm. having a good time. She's talking about this stuff. Right. And I just kind of realized, oh, you know, I think if I want to be, you know, enjoy my job and be great at it, I'm going to have to align it with my interests. That's just personal to me. And then I saw an ad in the ORs. That's kind of how it started. But the reason I said, why didn't you 
is kind of because I didn't get the first job that I applied for at Universal. So I walked in and I was like, oh, for sure, this is my job. Sat in the lobby. There was a band in there. It was so cool. It was just, it was another world. And I just was sitting there thinking, this is for sure, for sure, my job. Didn't get the job. And I was so shocked. I was like genuinely because I had felt that it was for me and then I didn't get it. And then, but what had happened was I had decided from being there, I thought, okay, that felt like where I'm supposed to be. That was a different level feeling from what my firm job is. And so I just went back and said, you know, what else could I do here? You know, how do I get my foot in the door here? And they said, oh, well, you were second in the process, which I had no idea. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't gone back and knocked on the door and said, you know, what else can I do other than be a lawyer here? And they said, we need a contract administrator. So I did that. That was my foot in the door. Mm. Giant pay cut, bus to Victoria Park in the 401. <laughs> so which for people outside Toronto. Did you work for it? <laughs> I had to work for it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a change. And I had a cubicle. And I had had an office looking out at the lake on the 27th floor before. And it was quite a shift. So there were many times when I thought this, you know, this is not a smart idea. Certainly my parents did not think it was a very smart idea, but it took three months to transition from that first job into a, the job I had originally applied for. And I loved that, that contract admin job. If I'm being honest, I made like licensed big shiny tunes and much dance. And uh, it was, it was fun. And I used the time to really learn about the business and read the contracts. And I, I wouldn't trade that experience, but it was it was a it was a foot in the door job, no doubt. And so, was music a passion of yours? Like, were you a big music fan before going to law school? Like, setting aside that you didn't sort of think that you know music was where you're going to end up. Like, were you? Did you love music? Because I loved music. Music was my life yes. for a long time. Yeah, it's funny. I went to my 20 year high school reunion recently, and everyone was like, "Of course you worked in music. Like, right. of course you did." Nice. But it's funny because that was their perspective of me. And to me, it was not so obvious. Um, but yeah, I, music was kind of my, if I, were, if I were to characterize it appropriately, I would say it was kind of my ticket out of where I was, mm-hmm. right? It was sort of the thing that was from outside my town. And I could listen to this, you know, I remember hearing REM out of time mm-hmm. when I was about, I don't know, 13 and just being like, What? is this, you know, like, this is not the radio station in my town. This is something, this is a big deal. So through music, I kind of interacted with the world. And I was always the kid trading mixtapes in high school, and I would make my own art for them. And mixtapes are a lost art, eh? Like, it's such a shame. It is. It's kind of a shame. And the playlist is not the same. Although Mm. I still do playlists for people. I get requests from time to time, and they take me (laughs) like so long. (laughs) I don't do the art anymore. But yeah, it is a lost art. And it was a way of I mean, my roommate in law school, when I first showed up in Toronto, she was going through a breakup, we'd never met. I'm like, hello, Uh, here's a pile of CDs you might like I have post-it noted them for what you seem to be crying a lot. Seems to be a lot going on here. So I have posted noted them with the track that you're meant to listen to right now. Anyway, so we called it the musical care package. And yeah, so this is deep. I mean, this goes way back. And just the idea of I've been researching music my whole life. So record labels, like I understood the industry much more than what I was doing before. Right. 
Yeah, see, that's interesting because I'm similar in, in a lot of ways in the sense that, so I love music. Music was a huge part of my identity and, and sort of what I found interesting and, and what I kind of immersed myself in. But I was also really interested in the industry, right? So like I was like, I mean, as I sort of alluded to before, like I was the nerd who, like I didn't want to be whoever, like Axl Rose or somebody. Like I wanted to be David Geffen. I wanted to be the guy who owned the company, right. like I'm the total dork. And so you have that knowledge you end up at universal i also did not want to be axel rose (laughs) (laughs) neither of us really would have been particularly good axel roses or michael stipe or yeah front of the stage no absolutely no matter what i would do it would be sort of behind the scenes for sure right not that nerdy i mean it's interesting stuff back there that's very generous of you so you end up there at at, at a time where I imagine there was an enormous amount of angst and sort of having to deal with a a world and an industry in transition. So what was that like? Like, what was it like walking into a company that was getting buffeted by these winds of change? I'll resist the urge to whistle that. (laughs) I don't want to ruin your podcast. It was amazing and it was the opportunity. So the the thing that I always say, like when lawyers listen to our podcast or when I'm speaking to people, I just kind of, for me, it was about jumping in because I felt that was the moment for me. Everything socially would have said that is not the moment. You know, record labels are dying. CDs are dying. What are you doing going into this dying industry? And, you know, in, in chaos, there's opportunity, I suppose. So when I walked in, Everyone who had been there, they enjoyed doing the artist deals, the traditional record label work. I actually never have enjoyed that work as much because you're negotiating against the artist. You know, your label and you're going, you know, for royalty points against the artist that's coming in wasn't my favorite thing to do anyway. And because I was new and corporate, that was my reputation. And I probably acted that way and my emails were in that tone. I got all of the sort of new digital streaming business. So my job was to transition the company. And, you know, had it not been so new, had it not been so uninteresting to other people, I mean, a 30-page contract from Apple shows up and, you know, they were happy to have me work on it. And I was so excited to work on it. And uh, it was it was great experience. And I loved that work. So it was a form of setting up a business within a business with lots of support from a broader team. But just, uh, you know, I'm so glad I moved when I did, or I would have missed it. Right. You know? See, now that sounds terrifying to me. So because I, I guess one of the reasons why I like working at a firm, particularly a big firm, and I've, I've only ever worked at big firms, is I really like the fact that there are very few problems that are going to come in the door that there isn't somebody who can sort of weigh in on or has had experience with it. Whereas I feel like, and maybe this is a misperception on my part, I feel like when you are in-house, particularly if you have a small team, like you're it, right? So if a new deal comes in from Apple and they need somebody to look at it, like that's suddenly the buck stops with you. You have to tangle with that. Is that So it sounds like you found that sort of invigorating. Yes, but also part of a global team, right? So it wasn't, uh, Universal is a multinational company. So there were a lot of people that were involved in that effort and who knew and who had, you know, I was part of a team and the Canadian piece of the team. So it was an extraordinary opportunity to learn and see people in action that were at the top of their game. And, and also it's exciting to work in gray, 
right? Like I think black and white is its own legal skill where you're like, this is how we always do it. Put the thing here, do this thing the same way we always do. And maybe there's like a slight variation on the issues. But this was really like sitting down from a business perspective thinking, okay, what's going to happen here? We used to ship CDs to a store and we would know how many were sold. Now we're relying on this company to say, here's how many songs we sold, right? Like creates a whole new business that you have to kind of structure. But I was not on my own, but you're, you're correct to say that in in-house, usually you are, the buck stops with you and you have to get external if you don't know how to do it. And the thing about in-house is that you see the issues first. So sometimes there is no one external who knows how to do it. And that is very stressful. There's definitely no doubt about that. Right. And so did you start Interalia right after leaving Universal? Pretty much. I mean, I drove through the U.S. for a few uh, nice. weeks. Uh, we drove to Texas and back because Amazing. I just thought I needed a minute. What I knew, so when I left Universal, I decided, I had decided that I wanted to start my own thing. Mm -hmm. What I had not decided was what I wanted to do. I felt like it was a good time to make a move because um, we had just purchased EMI and it was a big, two big companies coming together period. And I'm a, I like to build things. That's, that's what I like to do. I don't really like to um, dwell in the minutia of like managing like that to me just seemed like it was going to be a couple of years that maybe someone else would be better suited to oversee. And I think that has happened. Um, so what I wanted to start something and I wanted to start something where I was addressing some of the pain points of all the traditional models, because I think there are some pain points to in-house and there are some pain points to firms. And what I was trying to do was deal with both of them with Interalia. So that it just kind of, I decided that it would be a firm that only I would work at, at the beginning. <laughs> and then over time, it has just kind of mushroomed a little bit. And uh, it, it has accomplished that original objective. And also, many things have happened that I did not plan. So is it fair to describe Interalia as external in-house counsel? Uh, basically what we are, so we're all entrepreneurs. We all run our own practice. We are a practice and association. We all focus on media tech and entertainment. All of us were trained at large firms and then went in-house. So we are a different type of advisor for that reason, uh, is, is our uh, positioning in the market. Yes, we do external in-house counsel work for, for companies Yes, we do sort of specialized media tech and entertainment within the areas that we know well, um, but really we're doing the day-to-day -day for companies that are in our space and uh, working with clients that we like and that are doing cool things and then still very much working with external counsel a lot. You know, we're part of a network where we have to get all the advice that the client needs and it's not always us, right? Like every in-house counsel relies on a team of lawyers. Sure. And so... You mentioned that you like building things. You've been building Interalia for a while now. What's left to accomplish with Interalia? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, there are lots, I mean, is the, the very short answer. I'm happy with what we've built. So we're a team of nine now and um, continuing to evolve. And really what we, what the, the brand promise to lawyers is that you have more flexibility than at a firm or in-house more control over who your clients are, more ability to shape your practice, and then support from the ecosystem that we all are part of. So the thing about running your own firm, I guess we're sort of in the middle of being a solo, sole practitioner and being at a firm or in-house. So you don't have to do all the admin stuff. And that, I think the 
what we've built on the administering small firm side is, is something I'm very excited about. And then finding great lawyers who are attracted to what we're doing. That's the, that's the fun part. And then having clients say this works for us. So it's like the three things. That's what I'm excited about. Lots left to do though. I mean, we're all evolving, right? Like you're at a big firm, but even a big firm, like the market is changing so fast, like daily. So we all have to address that. And I like that. I find that energizing, but you know, terrifying too sometimes. You have to harness the terror. That's good. So it's a, we'll talk in a moment about your podcast because I think there's a, a lot to unpack there. One of the things, and this in part is informed by listening to your podcast, you're one of the lawyers that I know that I get the sense that you quite enjoy practicing law. Like, So there are a lot of lawyers I talk to, and, and I include myself in this group, who are like, if I could stop practicing law tomorrow, like I 100% would. <laughs> You seem to quite like practicing law. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Like, do you enjoy it? And, and what is it that you enjoy about it? What I really love is the clients and the issues and the business. So because of the practice area that I have and the way I've structured it, that's what the clients are looking to me for. So if I was, you know, receiving files from another partner and just having to work on them, regardless of whether I found them interesting, I don't, and I don't, not saying that's what's happening in your case, but you know, that was what I felt it was like at, at the firm that I started my career at, which was just, you know, you do the work in front of you, you hit your target, do a good job, get more work. And um, that's not the piece of the law practice that I love. So what I love is the client relationship, building it, figuring out how to solve their problem, you know, growing with their business, figuring out how to scale their legal with them, and just being sort of a team member. That's what I like. i I don't love just being an external advisor and kind of parachuting in and then getting out. It's just not what we do. We're more day-to-day with the clients. So I do enjoy what I do, but I had, you know, that's hard fought over many years of pivoting and kind of finding where I'm going to find my spot. Right. And I think, I mean, one of the things which I find really compelling about your podcast, the Lawyer Life Podcast, LLP nice touch. Um, but one of the things I find really compelling about it is that you're quite thoughtful about engaging with the practice of law in terms of a practice, right? Like a, a daily kind of undertaking that you are deliberate about improving on. So how did you get to that point where you decided that you wanted to start that podcast? And what were you hoping to accomplish with that? Such deep questions, Bob. <laughs> um, first of all, I'm, they'll get dumber as we go along, don't we? <laughs> okay. I love that you are enjoying the podcast. That makes me uh, very happy. I think when we started it, honestly, I just, you know, you're a small brand in the market, you're a small fish, really, um, starting out. And I had come from a record label where I understand, you know, creating a brand is, has a whole bunch of elements to it. And I thought, you know, our brand is more thoughtful. We are going at this a different way. Um, if, if we could just, you know, if I could talk to everybody, I could tell them that is sort of where the podcast started. So, I mean, I'm very, I've always been interested in high performance. Like, how do you get better at what you're doing? And I'm, I think so many people in law are like, oh, I just, I don't like law. And it's like, well, are you doing something you enjoy? Like at base? So, you know, if you, I don't think it's a simple thing to be like, I love music, 
so I will enjoy being an entertainment lawyer. Like I always say to people who come to me like, well, what kind of entertainment do you like? Do you like books? Do you like music? And, you know, there are some things about entertainment law that some people just would not like. And for example, I don't like dealing with drama. So as an entertainment lawyer, you can appreciate that that cuts out a, a good chunk of the entertainment law business, but I'm fine with that. You know, I'm good if I'm like, yeah, I, we don't take clients where we get a real sense of high drama right out of the shoots. And that's fine for us. But I don't know. I think, I think it's just something that we all have to work on. And as lawyers, what we were trying to do was to create a place to converse as like from within the profession. Can we talk about how everyone's not happy with what they're doing? And why not? And over the three years that we've been doing it, we've heard all kinds of great answers. And I think that the conversation is started now. Like it's definitely not just us. It's a, it's a broad, broadly discussed, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great contribution to that conversation. And I think really a substantive one. Um, so I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I, I certainly encourage everybody to, to listen to the Lawyer Life podcast. One of the recurring kind of themes in your contributions to that conversation is stoicism as a philosophy. So we'll go deep. We'll keep going deep for just a moment before we get to the shallow questions. But the, okay. what is it? I mean, clearly stoicism seems to resonate with you and it, it seems to be a productive approach or framework. Can you sort of elaborate on that a little bit? Like, why is it that stoicism is something that you draw on? Well, I mean, Mike, I should mention, Mike is my co-host. It is very much a Mike Anderson, who's also a lawyer at Interalia. He and I uh, immediately wanted to do the podcast. And without him, I don't know that I would have been able to do it because he is very technically savvy and very good at, If you, as you listen to the podcast, he's very good at structuring the content and um, providing a bit of form to it. So it's very much a team effort. And it really started with, I was always reading this stuff and just kind of encouraging him to like, oh, you should read this book, Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. It's just such a, an interesting book. That was my first entry point into stoicism. And then Mike has almost lapped me on the interest in stoicism. He's actually more stoic than I <laughs> at this point. Um, but what spoke to me about it was two things. One, I love this idea of not being attached to the ego that you built up early in your life, because we were all these overachievers, but then you go into the broad pool of, of the world and it's like, okay, well, all of us were that person who were the top of the class. And now we have to find a new identity. So one of the big things that I did when I moved from my firm, which was prestigious and my parents thought was where I should work to, you know, working a record label and doing something not prestigious, but really enjoyable um, I mean, it later, the first job was not prestigious in their view, <laughs> but I, I always was like, I'm not living their life though. You know, like that's the life they want, but I don't want that life. I don't like that life. It doesn't resonate for me. So ego is the enemy was this book where he talked about being successful early in life and having to like break up with himself as the early successful person and be like, now, who am I spoke to me huge, hugely. And then since then I have gotten a lot more into stoicism for the second reason, which is I think there's a lot of this um, narrative in self-help right now about like, live your bliss. Like, you know, if you're doing your right thing, everything's easy. And like, that's just not true. It's hard to be different. It's hard to uh, forge your own path. You don't get a lot of validation. You know, you don't get 
people being like, hey, good job that you're trying to like wreck everything that everyone else is doing, whatever. Um, and it actually, when you're when you're suggesting that there's a different way, it can bring up a lot of like pain in people, right? So for other people where they're they're not yet ready to question where they're at in life. So I've tried to find like ways to explain it and deal with it. And that's where stoicism has come in for me, because I think you got to be prepared when you try to be more, live a more authentic life and enjoy what you're doing for like, it's not just daisies and, you know, roses and treat yourself. Right. So that's what stoicism does. That's good. <laughs> Stoicism and treat yourself. That right. is about a summation. I mean, it's Ryan Holiday is doing a bit of a pop, like revisiting of this ancient philosophy, mm-hmm. which makes it easier to enter. Right. Mike's now reading like the real stuff, as you'll hear on the podcast. So mm-hmm. he's going to start lecturing on Stoicism, I'm sure, imminently. <laughs> right. So if there's any, like, is there an intro, like a good intro, you think that if somebody hears this and is like, oh, I'd be interested in hearing more about Stoicism, like, is there, is there a good entry point, like beyond sort of like the Wikipedia entry on Stoicism? I, I think the the books by Ryan Holiday, he's a, he's got a, an email newsletter called The Daily Stoic. Um, he wrote The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy. Um, there's a couple other books, but they're all really good books. And, you know, if you don't relate to it, there are many other paths into self-analysis uh, that don't involve Stoicism. But yeah, that one has spoken to me a lot. That's great. So to loop back then to sort of where we started the conversation about music, is music... So what I've found in my own life is music, as I said before, was a huge part of my identity when I was, you know, a teenager and in my early twenties, that's faded over time. Um, I still really enjoy music. I'm not as passionate about it in the same way that, you know, I used to have very sort of settled opinions about music and I would get angry about music or I would sort of fall in love with music. That's all gone. So maybe it's just like I'm old, right? Is that, does music still play the same role in your life as it once did? Well, what you're describing, I think, is very normal. I think, you know, I recently realized that the music I listened to would would be considered by the kids these days as classic rock. And I was really <laughs> disturbed by that. Yeah, it's a painful realization. <laughs> I was like, oh, when did that happen? Like, was there a moment that that happened or what was it? But I mean, even just this morning, I was listening to my favorites mix that's programmed for me by Apple, right? So it's pulling from my, what I usually listen to in my Apple Music mm-hmm. subscription and on there, you know, there is a healthy mix of sort of hard rock from the 90s, which is a staple in my collection. And then sort of the updated things that I'm listening to, um, I represent a bunch of indie labels in Canada. So I'm usually more attuned to what's happening on their labels than I would be if I was just a music fan. I wouldn't know them. I wouldn't know those bands now. I wouldn't know there was a new scene happening over here with five bands that are building it and stuff like that. So my practice area keeps me engaged with it. And there are some really great, I mean, the the music that comes out of Canada is just so great. Um, There is some really, really good stuff. And we've been responsible for so much of the world's music. It really, I mean, some of the, if you look just Drake and Justin Bieber, I mean, yeah, and the weekend. It's, it's astonishing, right? Like, especially compared it to really what is. it used to be, like you know, in the eighties and nineties. Like that, just simply was not the case, right? Like Canadian artists, when I was growing up, at least, were like a pretty marginal kind of presence in the in the music world. I mean, there were certain exceptions, obviously, but now, like, we're just such a dominant kind of origin point for like for pop music 
as it's understood around the world. I mean, and I mean, he identified Drake and, and Justin Bieber in the weekend. I mean, you can't, those are probably the three biggest stars well, in it, the world. It goes back a ways actually, because the top two selling albums of the nineties, um, and this is from a book I have called top selling albums of the nineties. So I've not verified. It does this, what it says stat. on the 10. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I've not verified this stat with the official sources, but you know, in that book, it has Shania as number one Canadian. Right. And then Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill mm. at number two. Right. Good so, point. you know, it's, it's, and Celine Dion, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. we've had some real global superstars come out of this country and, you know, also icons of, of music like Leonard Cohen, Neil Young. Right. Um, these are real, real contributions to the world. I think Canada punches like well above its weight. So to answer your question more briefly, yes, music plays a massive role in my life and, my philosophy, I mean, you mentioned stoicism, but generally speaking, philosophy plays a role in my life. And a lot of my personal like values and things were shaped by grunge, right? That sounds like a strange thing to say, but I mean, that was a movement where it was like, we, they came, it was glam rock through the eighties, you know, and like makeup and excess and misogyny and you know, that was, that's, I loved that music when I was from my small town, like, you know, it was that was the thing and then it moved into the 90s with like Kurt Cobain being supportive of reproductive rights publicly and this sort of new generation of thoughtful um, musicians that were political and you know didn't want to just make money and do no good for the world and stuff like that or, or make it worse and that's kind of what you know the lyrics from a lot of those songs are still driving forces in my my life I guess so I think it's okay to have your formative years of music still shape you. Right. That's my take as a classic rock listener. No, that's good. So it's interesting. So I'm a little bit older than you. So I actually have a very different relationship to the the rock music of the 90s and in particular grunge. Like I I viewed that music and that whole scene really as sort of like a betrayal of what I understood oh God, is this rock music to about? be about. It's one of the things I was angry about. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. I, I hated Kurt Caleb. Cobain. Why? Tell, tell us about that. That's very interesting. Um, because I thought that rock music had a template and it sort of did in a certain sense. Um, and I, a, a template which was premised on that, like you said, that sort of notion of excess, that notion of kind of like adolescent defiance and uh, sort of very, like it was a, it was an outsider's music. Yeah. Um, something which I think was something that kind of, you know, had lasted from the, the early to mid 60s through to the end of the of the 80s. Um, and that whole notion of music being one component of a broader kind of political engagement, I found really off putting. Right. Like I just didn't care about how like, you know, the person I was listening to voted or thought that I should vote. Like I was sort of, I found that kind of obnoxious, frankly. Um, Interesting. So you wanted you know, just pure rock and roll, stay out of politics. Yeah. Just yeah. hedonism, right? Like just dumb okay. sort of 
this is something that's enjoyable because like, you know, we're going to spend the rest of our lives working and being ground down by the system. Like, let's have a space where all that you do is sort of have fun. That made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I've yeah. since come to appreciate and engage with that sort of post alt rock and alt rock and post alt rock music. Um, but it doesn't, it, you know, I still don't have the relationship to that music that I do to, to earlier, earlier forms of rock. So, so who are your bands? Who are the ones who you're like defending with that? You're like, just have, let's just have fun with this rock. Like who are the, your favorites? So I was a huge, I mean, I still am like a huge Rolling Stones fan. I was a, I, I was a big glam rock believer. Mm. Like I really loved Guns N' Roses. I really loved a lot of, there's bands like Rancid, Social Distortion, The Black Crows, ACDC, Aerosmith. Like it's it, like my sort of taste in music is like very meat and potatoes. Right. Great. Um, so, and that, I think that also was, was another element of the nineties revolution in rock, which I just like at the time, I just couldn't kind of relate to, which was this dive into like the deliberately alternative. And so, so let me give you an example of that. So I remember, I don't know, I was a big reader of Rolling Stone magazine. And so when, when I remember, you know, through the late eighties, you'd read Rolling Stone and, you know, every year they'd sort of have maybe like a year end issue and they'd ask all of the sort of popular musicians, Oh, like what were your favorite albums of this year? Like, what are you listening to? And so they'd list all these things and I'd be like, Oh yeah. Like I've, I know that album. Like I've, that's like, they would name the popular music, right? Like they talk about like Bon Jovi or whatever, um, things that I would recognize. And then frankly, I think this started with REM. And then as soon as 91 hits, when they asked musicians those same questions, all of a sudden it seemed to me like the game was no, like reference really obscure music that nobody's ever listened to or nobody's ever heard of. That's very kind of underground. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, this is just so lame. Like you're listening to, you're, you're telling me like you're listening to some album that, you know, 300 other people have listened to. I've now under like I now understand like what they were doing in a lot of cases was trying to draw attention to music that they loved and that that really resonated for them and so it, it was actually kind of a generous thing of them to do but at the time again I just kind of found it obnoxious um, like it was a pose that I just didn't kind of enjoy hearing. You're about. you're very much describing what the world of music was like. It was a bit mm. of a turf war back then. You were a banger or you were alternative yes. or you were like there was real identity attached to that. So I mean to be very clear, I mean I was listening this weekend to the uh hair ballad essentials playlist. Yes, good for you. Music. So amazing. I think it was hard rock hair metal ballad essentials. <laughs> Just a spectacular playlist. And my kids, it was really, you know, I was, they hadn't heard that music before and they were, they were really relating to it. I mean, they were liking it. They, they it's can't, timeless music. It's so great. I mean, there were some <laughs> great things. I wouldn't say it's not political music. It's just, it wasn't like, for example, some of the GNR music, I love Guns N' Roses. Mm. Like they are one of my all-time favorites, best concert I ever went to probably. And when I was in high school, Use Your Illusion Tour. I mean, you know, so I was able to sort of walk this line where I liked the alternative stuff. I could, and I liked the mainstream stuff and I've always kind of liked the best of all the genres. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I don't like all the grunge. There is some stuff in the genre I don't like, 
but even now I only like some R&B. I only like some soul. I only, you know, I never, I'm not a genre specific person. And within the label world, it was very common that people liked everything. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, I, I didn't find as many people sort of trying to reference the 300 person band or whatever, right. the thing that no one has listened to. And I do bristle at that because I think that sometimes everyone gets on a, it's like a mark of look how cool I am. I'm down on, I'm, I'm up on what's, uh, what's happening, what the kids are doing these days. But I, I've now lived long enough to know that there are people who see things early and they're right in on the ground floor. And um, it's a really innovative, it's a, an interesting skill. Not everyone has it. And certain people get known for having it and they do it over and over. And then it becomes a self-perpetuating thing where people are like, what are they listening to? That's the new cool thing. So there are all these dynamics that I find fascinating. And I'm so glad we waded into this. Uh, <laughs> we, didn't have, we didn't really have an argument about it, but yeah, right. I, I really, I understand that, that perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was quite tribal, right? Like you, you, your, the music you listen to constituted your identity in a large way. And look, I'm, I, it, it's a shame in a lot of ways, right? Like I'm, I'm, I missed out on a lot of really great music at the time that it came out because of that, because I was sort of really blinkered and constrained and like, Oh no, I only listen to this kind of music. I've since you know, learned better. I've, I've, uh, I like to think that my musical tastes are a little more eclectic now, but yeah, I mean, I wonder, I, I assume that just for a variety of reasons, including just the changes in the industry, I'm assuming that music isn't as tribal now. So somebody who's like, you know, 15 today doesn't have that same, they're not constrained in the music that they listen to in the same way that I was. And that I think, uh, you know, a lot of people were back then, which is great. Like I, it's an amazing improvement in the way that culture is generated and enjoyed and disseminated that people can just have access to so much music and so many different types of music and can be comfortable and enjoying all those different things. So that's good. It is good. I do wonder where the shared experiences of the future are, right? Mm. Because I think that there is so much new stuff and I personally find it hard to just keep space for new bands that I only hear once on a playlist as opposed to you know heavy rotation on Jagged Little Pill you'd hear that you'd hear you ought to know 27 times a day right. for like if you listen to the radio the whole day that is what heavy rotation was in the 90s that is a lot of like you will never forget these songs <laughs> right and I don't know what that looks like for future and I think there are fewer and fewer superstar artists and more and more access at the at the lower levels but you know, what concert are we all going to in 20 years that everyone has a relationship with from their youth? That's kind of where I wonder, you know, right. when, as all these legacy bands, I mean, I only saw the Rolling Stones, you'll be horrified by this, but I was not a Stones fan. I was firmly in the Beatles camp. So mm. actually, we have a lot of similarities in how we, uh, for whatever reason, you can like both, but of course, that was not a, you should I don't like know. both. <laughs> <laughs> like, and as an adult with maturity, I do like both. Right. <laughs> um, I only saw them last or on their last tour. They came through Toronto a couple of years ago, a couple of summers ago. And uh, I'm so glad I saw them. You know, I'm glad I abandoned my, I'm not a Rolling Stones fan, you know, 10 years ago and got into it so I could see that. Nice. Right. And everyone loves them. Everyone has a story about how the Rolling Stones, you know, they were they were here when that song was playing. And like, wh what's that in the future? I don't know. Other than Drake and The Weeknd and some of the ones we mentioned. Right. Well, so to wrap up, is there 
just to go back to your point about how it's it's difficult to kind of find those diamonds in in the sort of onslaught of of uh, music that we're being bombarded with is there anything that you'd recommend that people listen to anything that you're particularly enjoying at the moment aside from hair metal ballad yeah aside <laughs> please <laughs> i mean that goes without saying right people should definitely be listening to that <laughs> Oh, you know, I, in the past couple of years, it really depends what people are into. I really like, and this is going back a bit, but uh, a few years ago, I discovered this artist, Michael Kiwanuka, and his name is sort of sounds obscure, but he he does really good soulful uh, music. That's I would, I guess the genre now would maybe be adult contemporary, but given you have a broad listener base, to me, that's a really great, like the music is just wonderful. And he uses Danger Mouse as his producer. Okay. So the production values are really good. And anyway, that I love Michael Kimanuka. That's probably one that I've listened to a lot over the past few years as an album artist, right? Because to me, Imagine it's like, that. <laughs> yeah, like there are very few albums I will listen to top to bottom multiple times. I'm more of a songs person. I'm also, there is, you said glam rock. So there's an independent label in Canada that has a, a new artist called Art Deco. Have you heard of him? He's, uh, he's pretty cool. He's, he's doing some, some stuff. He's got a big song called Head Rush that you might enjoy if you mm. like that. It's sort of a, a revisiting of that time period in music. Right. And then, yeah, aside from listening to all the old stuff, which I do, um, let's see, what else am I listening to? Oh my goodness. I always, you even told me that you would ask me this question. <laughs> it's okay. I always blank on this. Like when people are like, so what are you listening to? I'm like, I, I got to look uh, at my YouTube sort of history. <laughs> I tend to listen to a lot of like energizing. I still listen to a lot of the offspring from the early nineties. Mm. Um, I still, I'm listening to every now and then I get seated. I like Billie Eilish. This like, she's got some great stuff that's out. I always like this sort of female, like Halsey. There's some really good people revisiting, um, doing cool stuff in that genre. And yeah, there's a bunch of great stuff out there. There's so much new music. I think it's just a matter of figuring out what you like. And Beck's album from many years ago, Morning Phase from like 2013, still gets a lot of plays for me, just relaxing. Saturday morning music that one's great but yeah this is good like from stoicism to back like there I feel like there's a lot of takeaways for people from this from this uh, episode so that's amazing Darlene thanks so much for taking the time to to have this conversation it was a real pleasure and I look forward to hearing more lawyer life podcast episodes and catching up again soon okay thanks for having me this was fun thanks for listening hope you enjoyed the episode if you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.